This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. When we talk about the digital divide, that is, the gap between those plugged into the digital world and those who aren't, I immediately think of people like my nan, hunched over her old Nokia 3310, trying to figure out how to make a call. Or I think of people in the outback, living on dusty farms that stretch out to the horizon, the kind of place where people are more worried about running water than they are broadband speeds. These days, it feels like the digital world is inescapable, especially in the cities where our smartphones, tablets and computers are an essential part of our daily lives. And this feeling is backed up by the 2017 Digital Inclusion Index that says our access to the online sphere is only getting better each year. So why are people still on the wrong side of the divide? We hear a lot in the media about how we're trying to narrow this gap, as if all we need to do is build a bridge to connect these two opposing ends of Australian society. And once we do that, once we build the NBN, once we make sure everyone has full bars of reception, then all our problems will be solved. But what if the digital divide isn't really a divide at all? What if we're thinking about this all wrong? This episode, I'm going to be airing two conversations that challenge our assumptions about who is left behind in the digital age and whether we need to rethink this line we draw between digital haves and digital have-nots. First up is Laurel Dyson, Honorary Associate at the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. She researches the way Aboriginal people use mobile technologies I'm Laura Levelland Dyson and Dr. Dyson. Dr. Dyson. That's right. It's got a really nice ring to it. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. But you can call me Laurel if you wish. So could you tell me how you first came across the idea of the digital divide? Well, I suppose it's a personal interest because I was on the other side of the digital divide, which you might find odd for an IT academic. But I was one of those baby boomers who kind of missed out as a, at that time, casual contract academic. We didn't get the exposure to compute technology when it was being rolled out in offices and organisations in Australia in the mid-1980s. I ended up going from not having any skills when no one else had any skills to a situation where I still had no skills and was starting to become less and less employable. That's when I bit the bullet. But because I had a personal interest and could understand some of the fear that people have about what, you know, will it blow up if I accidentally press the wrong button? I had a particular interest and I pursued that with my research in Aboriginal people's adoption of technology to get more Aboriginal people skilled up at a totally professional level in the hope that then those skills would filter back to their communities and they would make good decisions for their communities. Were there particular communities that you were working with? Uh, Mainly with the communities in Cape York, which are challenging because they're very remote, but also a lovely place to go and do research. (laughs) What did did the digital divide look like in these remote communities in Cape York? 
Well, it's what it sort of still looks like now, where you have people who have got into ICT, but really only got into it this century with the rise of mobile technology. You'll find lots of Aboriginal people and other poorer people in our society generally have gone and made a choice about technology, but their choice has been to buy a mobile phone. That's great because it means now they have um, the ability to communicate, to get on Facebook, to contact all their friends and relations and build communities and a strong sense of identity. But mobile phones aren't as good for doing important things in terms of getting you out of a poor economic situation. For example, there are some studies when they've asked people what they do on a mobile phone versus a tablet versus a PC or a laptop. You'll see very much that on the mobile phone end, and even the tablet, there's lots of entertainment uses, taking photos, communication uses. But what you really need to have a desktop or a laptop computer before you start creating a document or editing a document or doing a lot of those things which we associate with employability and with doing courses which then might lead to improved employability. No one ever picks up even the top um, smartphone and starts writing a report for a university course on it. Yeah, what are some of the reasons why people are choosing mobile phones before laptops? Well, there's several reasons why particularly Aboriginal people and poorer people have gone for mobile phones. One is they're relatively cheap. If you look at the cost of the cheapest 3G phone compared to the cost of a laptop or a PC, it's much, much cheaper. Also, if you're poor, mobile phones give you a choice of having a prepaid plan. You don't have to worry about the money. If you've got the money, you go along and you buy some credit. And then once that's run out, if your welfare payment hasn't come in or your poor salary hasn't come in, you just wait until it does come in and then you buy some more credit. So the prepaid billing structure of mobile phones has been a huge plus for poorer parts of our community. Also, they're a personal device, so you can just slip them in your pocket or around your neck. You don't have to worry about the security of them maybe getting stolen or someone perhaps coming and using it and wrecking it. Also, if it goes bung, then you just chuck it away or you, in those remote communities, you can take it along to the post office, it'll be recycled. Whereas what do you do when your big desktop computer goes bung? It's uh, too big to post office, there's no computer shop or technician to do it up, and it's just a bit more junk on the rubbish dump. It's really interesting you say that the prepaid mobile plans made such a big difference, mm-hmm. because I guess when you think of internet for your laptop, your kind of locked into really expensive contracts. Yes, yes, it's more expensive. You've also got to commit, like even with the NBN rolling out now, most people are being forced to commit to two years with the provider. And if they default on that, they've got this huge bill. They can't get out of that. So that's not really good if you're not 
in a reasonably well-paying job and you also don't have job security. This doesn't seem like a problem that's unique to remote Indigenous communities. No, it's not. And you will find too some of the poorer sectors of our community in the cities or elsewhere also have really taken up mobile phones in a big way but don't always have a computer at home or a home internet access. Now, my first job when I graduated from IT here at UTS was as the IT teacher at Parramatta Jail. Now, that was a bit of an eye-opener because there's all these stereotypes of the older Australian as the one who doesn't have as good computer skills. Whereas when I went there, most of my students, most of the inmates, were young people. They were people who had had a very bad upbringing usually, poor education, maybe they'd changed schools a lot. Some of them had very poor literacy skills, couldn't add up to save their lives, didn't know how to turn on a computer or do anything on a computer. So it's wrong to think that it's only an age-related thing and that when the baby boomers and their parents eventually uh, drop off the planet, that it will no longer be a problem. It is a problem, and it's an ongoing problem. You painted a really interesting picture about what the digital divide looks like in regional areas. Mm. Could you paint a picture of what it might look like for someone living in the city? I think it's still the same. So I think you'd still find that some of the poorer groups people from very poor backgrounds, many Aboriginal people, some of our refugees or immigrants from very poor backgrounds, you'd find they're still on the other side of the digital divide. The only difference probably for them is that it's probably a shorter walk or bus ride to the local library where there's a free computer for them to use if they're prepared to wait in queue or use it for the one or two hours that they're allowed to before they get bumped off. I was surprised when I was doing some work up in the Bloomfield Valley in Cape York, just how many people in the Aboriginal community there were using their mobile phones for work-related things. For example, if they were enrolled as a job seeker, their job organisation would send them alerts about new job opportunities and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's still a big difference between that and actually being on a real computer. And do the people that you do research with, do they want a computer? Not necessarily. With, for example, Aboriginal people, there's lots of reasons why they didn't opt for the desktop computer model. Many Aboriginal people live in very overcrowded houses with lots of relatives and living there or passing through there occasionally and trying to just find a place in the household where you can set up a computer and use it without it getting bumped into by people or a quiet place where you might do your study. Even just simple things like that are a real problem. And there's the cost and the issue of when it breaks down, what do you do with it, how do you replace it? So it's not an issue that's going to go away. We do need to have strategies in place to deal with this this divide. What are some of the strategies? Probably the word digital divide really dates from the 1990s. That's when people became aware 
there were some people with access to the technology and the skills and other people who didn't have access and didn't have the skills. And usually what the government did and what communities did was, as well as setting up little training courses at um, adult education, community colleges on how to use Word and how to use a computer and how to use the internet. The problem with a lot of that kind of training is it might help you to get basic computer skills, but there's a big difference between that and becoming really confident and proficient. And we see this even now when we have these problems over the internet and we'll find a whole lot of people become victims to the latest scam. People don't always have as much knowledge and skill about how to deal with things and uh, sometimes get themselves into problems. And when we look at employability, employers now expect a high level of digital proficiency, not just basic skills anymore. That was Laurel Dyson, Honorary Associate at the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. Up next, I'm going to be chatting about what happens when you're digitally isolated, not just because of your region or your education, but because the government doesn't want you to be connected. This is Think Digital Futures. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson. I've been exploring this idea of the digital divide and chatting to researchers who are questioning what this actually means in Australia. Next up is Linda Lung. Linda is Associate Professor and Honorary Associate at the UTS Business School, where she researches people's experiences of the digital world. Lately, she's been tearing down misconceptions about the digital divide by looking at it from the perspective of asylum seekers at Villawood Detention Centre. It's a subject of her upcoming book, Technologies of Refuge. Just because it's there doesn't mean it's accessible accessibility necessitates a whole range of other things. It requires good design, it requires good usability, it requires people to know about it, it requires not only technical skills in order for people to be able to access it or, you know, the skills to be able to use the device, whatever device they're using to access it. Yeah, Mm. do we know how many people in Australia do have access to the internet? Well, there, there are a lot of stats around that. The Australian Communications and Media Authority put out a digital lives report that suggested somewhere around 90 something percent of Australians are digitally included or digital participants of some kind. I would suggest that that is a little bit inaccurate, simply because the way the research was done was to ask people if they had used the internet sometime in the last six months. And that might include somebody who doesn't use it every day and might have had help using it. So 
someone like, you know, people like my parents who ask me to do a Google search for them would actually be included as part of that. You know, so there's this, it's more of a spectrum than a than an, an absolute divide. In a sense, the binaries are still there and they're still very much innate in the debate. What is the binary? The binary is, you know, whether you're on the right side or the wrong side of the digital divide, whether you're part of the in-group, you're included, digitally included or digitally excluded. My argument is that that's actually not a very helpful model, that kind of binary model, simply because of the range of technologies we have in our technological landscape. It's very hard, I think, to say, well, people are digitally excluded because they are using, inevitably, digital technologies of some kind. What the digital divide, digital exclusion debate has tended to mean is, are they using the right technologies at the right time? There Mm. does seem to be kind of a moral judgment there. So you've got the right side and the wrong side. Is that something you found in your research with refugees? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There have been lots of studies around the digital divide and they tend to focus on particular groups and communities. If you put them all together, then that's a lot of people on the wrong side of the digital divide, you know. Part of my broad remit for my research was looking at minority groups and how they access technology, how they appropriate technology for their needs. Visiting Villawood, I was really, well, the all sorts of range of emotions associated with with going to somewhere like that, aside from horror. But asylum seekers are within a very highly technologised environment, using technologies of surveillance and technologies of control to contain them, to ensure that there is this divide between them and the rest of the Australian community. Could you explain a little bit more these kind of technologies of control and surveillance? Like what what were the asylum seekers seeing around them and their environment? Okay, so when you go there, it's almost like a park surrounded by barbed wire. It's, it's like somebody's just plonked all this chain mesh fencing around a park. And that park area, that, that courtyard area, is the meeting area when community groups go and visit. But before you are able to get in there, you have to know who you are visiting. So you must know their full name and their number. So they, they're given a number. So it, in many cases, it's, it's like going to, into a prison. You're required to provide your driver's licence. And, you know, all your details are taken down before you enter. You go through security, just like an airport. All your things are x-rayed. You're scanned to see if you're bringing any contraband in. And contraband might include a smartphone. So you weren't allowed to bring any kind of recording device in. So, again, this is around prohibiting particular technologies, right? And you, and you wait. The people that you've come to see are called out and they either hear it or they don't. So if they don't hear it, they don't come out. So you don't get to see them or somebody has to go and find them. Beyond that little courtyard area is, I don't know, but that's also the case with phone calls. Anybody who phones into the centre, you know, you're waiting on the line for ages and ages while this person found. As far as the spectrum of digital access goes, this is like the far, far side of it. This is like restricted. This is controlled. Absolutely. Yeah. It's controlled in in the most extreme way. And when I started looking at, you know, what kind of access to technologies they had, I found that they had computers in there, for example, 
but there was no internet access at that at that time. That has since changed. They're allowed internet access, but it's also highly restricted. There was a lot of restrictions on social media. At that time, they weren't they were allowed to look at websites and often they would be looking at websites in their own native yeah. language. But any sites that allowed commenting or discussion in any kind of discussion groups, any blogs were not allowed, you know. So essentially they weren't allowed to have a voice. They weren't allowed to express an opinion. They weren't allowed to actually produce content, create content of any kind. What were they saying to you about, like, did they want to access the internet more? They were saying, yes, they wanted to find out more about Australian society. They were very hopeful that, you know, one day they would be released. They wanted to integrate into Australian society. They wanted to know what was going on in the world. They wanted a voice to be able to tell Australians that they weren't the kind of monsters that they were being made out to be in the media. In a sense, they were saying, well, while I'm being detained here, I... I have my physical freedoms curtailed, but perhaps the internet might allow me that freedom of that kind of virtual border crossing, if you like. My question was, what is the threat, really? If they're reading some websites, um, if they're, um, you know, making some comments on people's blogs or on discussion groups, what is, what is the threat to national security there? Did you find an answer to your question? No. (laughs) You know, many people have been asking those questions, uh, refugee advocates and refugee groups, you know, alongside the the whole debate about mandatory detention is, well, then, you know, why are we curtailing these um, access to technologies? What's the issue here? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting what you said about the idea that digital access meant they could have a voice. And it certainly suggests that there's a lot more going on than just the digital divide here, that it's kind of feeding into a lot of other issues in society. Well, I think there are a lot of, again, assumptions that are being made about what digital participation means. And that is really in terms of refugees and asylum seekers... There's an assumption that in order to be a good digital citizen, you have to be a citizen, right? So there, there can't be a question mark over your statehood, your citizenship. So there's this whole assumption around who is deserving of access to technology and who isn't. And the policies of immigration detention and Villawood Detention Centre at the time were clearly stating that because it's seen as dangerous in the hands of the wrong people. Dangerous to what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what would be dangerous about people wanting to be informed. You know, I guess that is the danger. That was Linda Lung, Associate Professor and Honorary Associate at the UTS Business School. So our experiences with digital technologies are so varied that perhaps the best way to bridge the divide is to throw the whole idea of a divide out the window. By focusing on connectivity issues, we lose sight of the real reasons why some of us aren't engaging with the digital world. We need to reframe this debate 
and look at the political and cultural factors that stop people from participating online. It's only then that we can create a more digitally inclusive society. This has been Think Digital Futures. This show was a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information and past episodes, head to 2SER.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. We're also a podcast, so look out for us on your favourite podcast app. I'll be back next week. I'm Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening.